Let's stand one more time. Let's take our Bibles as we are standing and turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. I want to read verses 18 through 22. 18 through 22. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not to the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Let's pray. Our Father in God, we thank you for the privilege of opening up the word of God and pray for the spirit of God to guide and direct us through this text this morning that we might understand it better, understand you, and that, Father, we might go from here again with a zeal to serve the one true living God. We commit the word of God in our study. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. As we come to this text this morning, <clears throat> I want to mention that, first of all, this is one of the most difficult passages of Scripture. Uh, that there is for us to study. For example, some have used this passage as a basis for the necessity of baptism for salvation. Some have used this text as a basis of a second chance for those who are in hell, while still others have used this text as a defense for the salvation of angels. And uh, I believe personally that it's one of the reasons why few pastors even attempt to preach on the text because of the difficulty involved here. To help you appreciate it so you don't take my word for granted, let me quote from Martin Luther. Martin Luther said in his commentary, which I have in my office, he says, it is a wonderful text, is, uh, let me give you the exact quote, a wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for certain just what Peter means, end quote. Calvin, in his commentary, said this, as the obscurity of this passage has produced as a usual various as uh, usual various explanations i therefore no doubt but peter speaks generally that the manifestations of christ's grace was made to godly spirits but it may be inquired why he puts in prison the souls of the godly after having acquitted them by his grace, end quote. 
And what I'm pointing out to you is there's very godly men who had tremendous difficulty with this passage. The point is this, it is not an easy passage to read or understand. I also want to take a moment to say to you as a people, this is the very one of the very reasons why I think preaching or people that stand in the pulpit should be expositors. Why is it? This supports the idea of expository preaching because you cannot avoid the text. It would be very easy for me to skip over and say, I don't know what it means, and leave it. And uh, you should not do that because we are told that we are to teach the whole counsel of God. And in order to teach the whole counsel of God, we need to teach the entire word of God and entirely understand it in its context. And so I think there's integrity in not avoiding texts that are uncomfortable or that are difficult to understand and to teach them. And so I do believe it's a good reason, and that is why if you don't know what expository preaching is uh, and you're visiting the church, it's going through the scriptures verse by verse and explaining and understanding what they say and avoiding nothing. Now I want you to hear what my approach is going to be, and I say this because... I have read a number of commentaries, and I guarantee those of you that have been saved a while and have read the Word of God have probably read all kinds of material on these passages. Maybe even now, while I was speaking, were reading and footnotes in your Bibles or in your apps and so forth to try to determine things. And I will tell you this, as I read and studied and looked at commentaries, I was more confused after I read them. And it wasn't because they were not sincere people, because I would read one commentary and it says, well, that makes sense. Then I read another one, it says just the opposite of that one, what that one says, and I said, well, that makes sense. And then you're going back and forth, and I'm just telling you the normal struggle that happens. So, what are you going to do, Pastor Dan? Totally confuse us today? I hope not. My intent, and I want you to know this right up front, is this, and I hope you will all listen today, regardless of what your positions might be, or if you've never come across this text, uh, that you'd be open to the discussion of it. My approach, first of all, is not to create confusion by giving you all the various interpretations. I am not going to do that to you. If I do that to you, you'll be totally confused. I am also going to these points. To begin with, I am utterly convinced that the recipients of Peter's letter had no problem with the text whatsoever. So they were not confused. Peter wrote to them, and they understood what he was saying. Or else Peter would have just absolutely caused confusion, and he had no intent. Secondly, I personally am taking the approach and believe from all my heart that there are no contradictions in Scripture. And I have studied some very difficult passages. Whatever this text is teaching, it is not teaching something that would contradict the clear teaching of other passages of Scripture. Clearly, it would not do that. Thirdly, and this is very important, my approach in studying this and I have labored over this text greatly. And in teaching you as a congregation what the Word of God says to the best of my ability, 
I am going to follow the basic rules of Bible interpretation and nothing else. And for those of you that don't know what that means, let me give you a couple of principles because I am going to follow this. Number one, I am taking the text literally. I am not going to avoid that. Number two, we will look very specifically but very simply at the historical setting. Because if we don't, we won't understand the text. That's why I read what I did in Genesis. Third, very important point, principles of Bible interpretation demand that whatever you're studying and reading is understood in its context. In its context. Fourth, I have compared and will to a degree scripture with scripture with you and probably fifth and most important, and some of you that are in my class have heard this, I will apply that which I teach others to apply. What is that? When all else fails after discussing and studying and doing everything that I can, I will choose the simplest alternative in the light of all the facts, not the most complex, because it will fit the text. And lastly, I think this one you'll see very clearly this morning, the simplest approach that I could take in my studies and in presentation is this, by presenting a series of questions and by asking myself that in my study and by doing that with you, I hope that we will come away today and unfortunately, I'm looking at the time, I get this pulpit very late today, but I am going to take the time to try to present this to you by a series of questions. So let's jump into it. That is the foundation. Let's look at the context. Those of you that have been with me, hopefully now will for the first time appreciate why Pastor Dan reviews all the time. What is the book dealing with? Peter has been calling believers, and if you stay with me and don't tune me out, I believe it'll help you with this interpretation. Peter has been calling believers who are citizens of heaven to live on the earth as Christians who are foreigners to this land, listen, who are suffering. They are suffering persecution, and in many cases that suffering is not fair. They are suffering unjustly. And because of that, he is trying to get their focus in and encourage them. That is the message of the entire book. As we have progressed through the book, he has been telling them how to live on the earth as believers in a general sense. He then moved from that into specifics. How do we deal with the government? Now this should recall some things to your mind. How do you deal with being a slave? How do we deal with situations at work since we are no longer a part of this world but we have to live in the world? How are we to behave as wives? How are we to behave as husbands? And then finally he progressed to how we are to behave among members of the body of Christ. That is what he has been teaching them. Very important point. You're in First Peter, follow me. Jesus Christ, he has pointed out throughout the book, is our example of how to do that. Go with me to chapter three, uh, chapter one, verse three. Quick highlights. 
This is to understand the context. Chapter 1, verse 3 of 1 Peter. Remember, he said this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again uh, to a living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Verse 15. But like the Holy One, that is Jesus Christ who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Christ has been the example. Chapter 2, verse 21. For you have been called to this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for us, for you to follow in his steps. Chapter 3, verse 18, which I just unpacked for you last week. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Throughout the book so far, to this point, and he will do it more, Christ has been the example. What is the immediate text? So there's the text of the book. There's the progress of the context. What is the immediate context? In verses 13 to 17, which is led up to this passage, let me remind you. Peter is encouraging them, what? Very important. To be ready to tell others. In other words, to share the gospel. And we have talked at length about that. The best example is you. You are to tell others the gospel. We are to be ready to be a witness. How? By our lifestyle. By living what we believe. That is the immediate context. This passage that we are looking at has to, has to fit because it is sandwiched between, watch this, verse 18 that I just read. It is sandwiched, sandwiched between that that is what Christ has done for us in chapter 4, verse 1. Look at it. Therefore, whatever he says in verses 19 to 22 is sandwiched between what Christ did and therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. And it is sandwiched between those, and in chapter 4, when we deal with it, is a call to action as a Christian. So somewhere between verse 18 and verse 1 of chapter 4, he's saying, here's what Christ did, be called to action even while you are suffering. That is the point. Peter is basically, in my opinion, to set the tone, agreeing with the Apostle Paul, which is what led me to my title. For you this morning. In chapter 2 of, of 2 Corinthians, chapter 3, excuse me, of 2 Corinthians, in verse 2, Paul said this to the Corinthians Listen, you are our letter, known and read of all men. In other words, the Apostle Paul said, You are the visual aid of God to the world in how you live. And I personally believe that in this passage, what Peter is saying is that we are, and he's going to lead to that, he is giving two illustrations. 
in verses 19 through 22. After encouraging them to, in their suffering, pointing out that Jesus Christ is the example, and telling them to continue defending your faith no matter what you face. In verses 19 through 22, he gives us two visual aids of God's witnesses to the lost world. I believe that that is the essence of what he's saying. One is from the Old Testament, verses 19 and 20, and the other is from the New Testament, verses 21 and 22. But it is all built off of verse 18, and that is what Christ has done. Now let me demonstrate it to you and explain the verses. The Old, Old Testament illustration is verses 19 through 20. Who is it? Noah and his family. And what he is saying to his readers, and they would have understood this, that I want you to understand when I'm charging you to live this way and to be a testimony, I want you to think back to the illustration, basically, of Noah and his family. Now, the first question I ask is this. Why pick Noah and his family when he could pick anyone else? Why? Let me give you this suggestion. And I didn't find it in any commentary. I just tried to exhaust my study on Noah. My suggestion to you as to why he picked Noah is Matthew 24. Let's turn there. When the Lord Jesus Christ was leaving and he was instructing his disciples on his return. And he was going to leave them and they were going to be there and they were going to face all kinds of things and he told them that. And then you come to chapter four of Matthew, chapter 24 of Matthew, he's talking to them about the future things and the tribulation. And you come down to verse 29, and you can read before that to find out it's tribulation. He says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky. Powers of heaven will be shaken, and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And he's returning to the fact that the Lord's coming back, and he says in that passage, if you look down in verse 30, he says, you will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of the sky. And his apostles wanted to know, what is going to be the sign of your coming? How do we know when you come back? And because why? Don't lose, don't lose me now. Because they were going to face persecution, just like Peter is writing to them. Now, who did he use? Look at verse 36. But of that day and hour knows no, uh, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, of the, Fa the Son, but the Father alone. Why? Watch. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving to marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then there will be two men. There will be two men in the field. One will be taken. One will be left. Two will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. Why did I go back here? I believe that Peter is using the illustration because Matthew was written somewhere around A.D. 50 which means they would have had the information taught by the law, the Lord. Because 
we are now 64 to 65 AD when Peter's writing to them. And they would have already had knowledge that Jesus Christ himself used the illustration of Noah to talk about their suffering and his coming back. They would have already had knowledge of that. And by the way, I don't have the time for this right now, but so I don't leave you hanging. That is not talking about the rapture in Matthew 24. Many interpret it that way. And I'll give you this quick synopsis. When it talks about the flood coming, coming and one being left, who was left? Believers. Noah and his family were left. The others died. The rapture is the reverse. The believers leave and the unbeliever stays. That is not the rapture that it's talking about. But they had this information. The readers knew about Noah. They had already heard about the fact that when rough times come, when situations are difficult, it's going to get so bad that it's going to be like the days of Noah before the Lord comes back. And the believers that Peter was writing to understood that. They understood that difficult times were going to happen before the Lord returns. So he goes right back to the illustration, I believe, of Noah when he's teaching them about persecution and living for Christ. Now go back to 1 Peter chapter 3. Who went in verse 19? It says, in which he also he went and made proclamation of the spirits. We have to ask that question. Who is it talking about? I believe the easiest answer to that question is one that commentaries don't like to hear. It's Jesus Christ. Why would I say that? Because there are three participles involved. In verse 18, it says he was put to death. In verse 18, it says he was made alive. And in verse 19, it says, then he went. It is talking about the same person. It is talking about Jesus Christ. It is not talking about a spokesman. It is not talking about anyone else. And many interpret it as it is Noah as the spokesman for God back then. And it is us as the spokesman for Jesus Christ. No, I don't think it's fair to the grammar or the text. Believe what he's saying is in which also he, that is from verse 18, Jesus Christ went and made proclamation. Well, if it's Jesus Christ that went and made proclamation, here's the next question. What did he proclaim? If he went and made proclamation before we get to the spirits, what is he proclaiming? And again, many assume that he's proclaiming the gospel, which is why you come up with the concept of people getting a second chance for salvation. I do not think that that is so. Why? Because the simple meaning of the word proclamation is to preach. It's what I'm doing now. What is it saying then? Simply that Jesus Christ went and preached. He went and proclaimed. Well, obviously, Pastor Dan, then he's going to proclaim the gospel. Right? No. I don't think so. We'll continue on and you'll see why. Who did he, pro who did he preach to? Well, he tells you. There's no question on that. He says to the spirits now in prison. Well, that's easy, Pastor Dan. Who are they? Who are these? They could be angels. They could be human beings, and I won't exhaust that with you. There are those on both sides of the argument. 
It would be easy for me to take the position of angels because a lot of the commentaries that a lot of you depend upon, that's what they say. And it would be an easy way out to interpret this passage. However, I don't think the context allows it. Why? First of all, in chapter 3, verse 22, you notice he uses the word angels. He could have done it very easily right here in verse 19, but he uses angels and authorities and powers in verse 22. So, I don't know. More important to me is, we can understand this if we look at who are the ones who are disobedient. He says, to the spirits now in prison who were once disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah and during, during, important, the construction of the ark. A lot of people, again, I went back and read Genesis, would say that that is angels who, the sons of men and all of that that got involved, they were the ones that are disobedient, and there is scripture that shows that angels are in prison. That is true, but I don't think it fits the context. Why? When the patience of God, waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, what is that? It was 120 years that Noah built the ark. You can go back and check me out on your own. It took him 120 years to build the ark. What was Noah doing? The scriptures tell us. Go with me to Hebrews chapter 11. Not only was he building the ark in obedience, watch. Hebrews 11, 7. By faith, Noah, being warned of God about things not yet seen, he didn't know about the flood and all this stuff, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household by which he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness, which is according to faith. Now go with me to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. And I'm moving ahead for time. God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, watch this, a proclaimer, a preacher, and it is only a different form of the same word. This is the person. A preacher of what? Righteousness. With seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Of the ungodly. What is that saying? Noah, while he was building the ark, was proclaiming the righteousness of God. That is clear from scripture. And what happened? They did not listen. They would not accept what he was teaching them. That's why they didn't believe him. They were disobedient to God. That is the easiest thing in the context. Noah was building the ark. Go back to chapter uh, 3 of 1 Peter. They were once disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction. The issue with the angels happened before that, according to the word of God. But during the construction, the people were being preached at by Noah, and they would not listen. They didn't want it. What is going to happen in the end times? It gets to the point that Jesus Christ says, when I come back, will it be faith on the earth? 
Because as people are proclaiming the word of God, no one is going to want to listen and it's going to be just like the days of Noah. Just like that. They don't want to hear the message so that they might be saved. So I believe the easiest thing for the context when you understand what's going on and you use the words of the context, it is that they were being, God was being patient. He was allowing Noah to build the ark for 120 years while Noah was living in righteousness and preaching righteousness. And during that construction, no one wanted to listen except for a, basically eight people. What is the point? Let me summarize it this way. The illustration of Noah, I believe, is for this. Noah was suffering the whole time he was building the ark while he stood for righteousness and the world wanted nothing to do with it. He trusted God and was obedient. They were disobedient. And yes, by God's own doing, for whatever reason, and terminology has put them in a place where they are confined because of that rejection. And what happened? He's trying to tell them God saved Noah and his family who live righteously. It fits the context. Because Peter is saying, you're suffering. Look back to Noah. Just like I showed you Jesus Christ. Look back to Noah. He suffered. He kept preaching did what was right, and God preserved them. <clears throat> By the way, let me repeat this. God saved Noah, not the water. The water did not save Noah. It was God. In fact, the water was God's judgment that killed people. So, what did Jesus proclaim? I come back to that. Simply this, victory. I don't believe he went and preached to whether it was angels as your interpretation or people. I don't think he went to preach them a, a gospel so that they could get saved as people interpret it. No. I believe what you have is Peter being consistent with Paul. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Stay with me. I am going to go a couple minutes over. I know that's not good news for your dinner. But I, it, this is such a crucial text. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 8 through 10. I'll get right to it. Now this expression... Oh, let me go back to 8. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led... Very important. He led captivity captive or led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean? Except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is himself also. He who ascended far above principalities, or far above the heavens, so that he might fulfill or fill all things. Who is he referring to? Jesus Christ. What did he do? He sealed their doom. And that captivity captive concept is the sign of a victor that went, went and basically said, you are sealed, and he led them, and the visual aid is, and they understood it, would be somebody conquering a town, and then behind them were all the slaves that were led by ropes because their, their doom was sealed. So when he went to preach to the spirits in prison, 
who were disobedient during that building. He went and didn't preach the gospel to get them saved. He preached the victory of Christ to show them they were sealed. And he's encouraging them, that is believers, that Christ got the victory. And you can look at Noah, and when that happened, when Christ got the victory, those people knew that it was over. He wanted them to live for Christ. Noah lived for Christ. And now what you have, very quickly, in verses 21 and 22, is the New Testament illustration. So his point to them was, be ready to give an account, even if you're suffering, because Christ died for us, verse 18. Noah is an example to you, verses 19 and 20. And who is the example in the New Testament? Christians. We are the visual aid to the world. And I believe that's what he's saying in verses 22 and 21. Corresponding to that, to what? Noah. That is the context of baptism now saves you. First of all, the point is this. They were obedient, that is the people he's writing to, and even if you are facing persecution, still continue to wait upon the patient long-suffering of the Lord and do what is right because you are a visual aid to the world. Now, what type of baptism is he talking? Again, I want to be honest with you. It would be very easy for me to say spirit baptism and make my job easy. But I can't do that in my conscience. I believe he's dealing with water baptism. And people don't want to do that because of the words that will then water saves you. Uh, now baptism saves you. And if you do that, Pastor Dan, we're in trouble. No, we're not. No, we're not. The comparison is to the flood. That's water. And I think it's very important. I think the comparison is the significance of our baptism. And I want you to know this ahead of time, by the way. After doing my study on this passage, I am convinced that even our church needs a message on baptism. Because I think this world and Christians as a whole have lost the entire significance of what baptism is all about. There are too many that say they profess faith in Christ and never get baptized by water because they don't see the importance of it. These people understood it. And what, what it was for them, and I'll get into that when I study baptism with you, so there's going to be one message at least before I get into chapter 4, but because they understood baptism, there was nothing understood in the early church about somebody getting saved and not getting baptized by water. They got baptized right away because their life was on the line for Christ. And that was a visual aid to the world, and they even got sent out of families because when they saw them get baptized as a Christian, they knew that what they were saying is they are following Christ and their life was committed to them. And it was a visual aid to the world. And so we'll deal with the significance later. If this is water baptism, how does it save? Well, context. It corresponds, that's what it says, to what? Noah. Did the water save Noah. No, it didn't. God saved Noah in the ark 
The water was the judgment of God. And the judgment of God raised that ark up. Yes, that is true. But God saved Noah. God's clear conscience of what? Get this, obedience. And I know that that's what it means, in my opinion, because of this. He says, the water did not remove the dirt from the flesh. And in talking about their baptism, you see, he's not dealing with that saving. The water doesn't do anything like that. The idea was the clear conscience, which, if you remember, back in verse 16, he says, keep a good conscience that in the thing in which you are slandered, you'll revile them by your good behavior. They will see it because you are living in obedience to God. So what we have here, again with the water, and I do believe it's water, he's pointing out the significance of their baptism to them. That God is the one that saves. The water never saved Noah. It was judgment. The water doesn't save anyone. It's the appeal of obedience to God in following Christ and even being baptized that's the visual aid. The visual aid to the lost world was the ark and the people that get saved by obeying God. The visual aid is the Christian who says he's committed to Christ no matter what, and through his baptism, it represents everything in this context. The death of Christ, and it ends with, you'll notice, through the resurrection of Christ. It's the new life with Christ that they now have. It is that God saves, not water. Water never saves anybody. And the baptism was a visual aid to the world of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and Christians who followed the Lord in believing the gospel are to live for him. And he's reminding them that that baptism is corresponding to the visual aid of Noah. And I believe the point of the context is this. Peter's appeal to believers is exactly what he's been talking about in chapter 3. Christ is our example. Yes, you will suffer unjustly, but live for Christ the way you're supposed to live for Christ, and others will ask you the hope that's in you because your life is a visual aid. And when you got baptized, it is a visual aid to the world just like the ship of Noah was to the lost and dying world who rejected the gospel. And he uses these two illustrations not to teach that baptism saves, not to teach that there was a second chance of salvation, but to encourage his believers, and he will exhort them in chapter 4, verse 1, Be therefore, because of this, live for Christ no matter what. You are what they see. Noah was who they saw. So don't worry about the suffering. Live for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that you are all saying, I don't know about that one, that's okay, that's good. But that's an honest conscience before God that has tried to study everything in its context. And he's giving us the understanding that Christ is the resurrection. He's now seated at the right hand of the power of God. And he's above all the angels, he's above all the authorities, and he's above all the powers and everything subject to him. And he's the one that they were following. So Peter writes to them, and I don't think he goes into some tangent 
that is totally unrelated in verses 19 through 22 that his writers didn't understand. I think they understood exactly what he was saying. He used the illustration of Noah because they understood when Christ comes back, difficulties are going to be there, and it's going to be just like the days of Noah. And he reminds them, Noah was the visual aid to the people that were lost. You, my friend, have been baptized, and your baptism was a representation to the people. It didn't save you. It didn't cleanse your flesh, but your conscience, because you were following Christ in obedience, you did what you're supposed to do, and your life is now a visual aid to the world. And he's encouraging the believers there that were scattered, continue to live for Christ no matter what suffering comes. You have done the right thing. So my exhortation to you, and I believe his exhortation to me, that is Peter, is you know what? You might suffer wrongly. You know what? Things might not be fair. But if you've professed faith in Christ, and you set apart Christ in your hearts, and you look to the example of Christ, no matter what comes your way, keep your clear conscience of you being the one that's obedient when everyone else is not, just like Noah was. And you will be ready to give an answer to the one that's going to ask you. Because the point of the illustration is, God has always had a visual aid to the world in addition to his word. Israel was supposed to fulfill that. They failed. He'll come back to them. Now he's using the likes of you and I. And we'll talk about that baptism next time. Because if you're here today and you're born again and you haven't been baptized, you should be. You had better be in obedience to Christ. Because that is a visual aid to the world. And in their day, it was very significant. And he reminds them of that. So continue living for the Lord Jesus Christ. How's your walk? How's your picture to your unsaved neighbors? How's your picture of your life to those you work with? I think that's what Peter wanted them to understand. If you suffer for that, it's okay. Live for Christ because he's at the right hand of the Father and the victory is his. He pronounced it and he's gotten it and we will enjoy it later with him. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for the word of God. I humbly come before you and uh, submit the attempted diligence in studying a context, not trying to make it mean what I wanted it to mean or what anybody else has influenced my brain to want it to mean. But I thank you that we have the word of God and certainly we can understand that Peter was calling the people to be a witness and testimony in the midst of their suffering. And Father, when we live for Christ, we know that we will face persecution. And as we live for Christ and are obedient, the world, like it was in Noah's day, may reject us totally. But to follow you brings great reward. And I pray that you give us the courage that Noah had to keep preaching, to keep building, to keep being obedient. Help us as believers who profess Christ to be obedient, to live for Christ no matter what comes our way, and trust ourselves to the one who we know we have believed in and are persuaded that he is able to keep that which we've committed unto him against that day. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.